now the cleanest hour in podcasting with your host, Ralph Peterson. This is the Housekeepers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Housekeepers Podcast, dare I say the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am your host, Ralph Peterson, and today's guest is the president of Universal Janitorial Services, Mr. Mark Lineberry. Mark, how you been? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I'm so interested in everything that you've got going on. It seems so fun because not only are you the president of Universal Janitorial Services, but you also, let me see what I, I forgot what it is. It's the Cleaning Industry Coaching. You also own Mind Clean Pivot. What yep. is My Clean Pivot? What is that exactly? Well, if you want to start. Uh, no, I'm just curious. Were you helping commercial cleaning companies? Yeah, yeah you know, strictly just, commercial. Yeah, just get yeah. to that next level. It's something that got born through COVID. So in all things, give thanks, right? And COVID comes along. And because of that, something new popped out of it. So I'm very thankful for that. Oh, now you got me interested because I got to tell you, I spent all COVID the entire year coming up with new ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Not a single one of them stuck, but I came up with a billion ideas. (laughs) Shiny object syndrome, huh? You know, it's not so much shiny object syndrome. It's you know how it is. When you get an idea, the next, after you get an idea, you have to start flushing it out and you start thinking about who could possibly be the customer. Then you start talking to people and then, you know, it gets shot down quickly. Oh, okay. All right. Well, could have been a good idea. All right. You know, on to the next thing. Then you have a new idea and you're like, oh, wait a minute. And you start flushing it out and you start talking to people like, all right, that, okay. Yeah. I can see how that wouldn't work. Okay. I didn't think of that, you know. And then you come up with a new idea. I mean, that's basically how I spent all of 2020. (laughs) I hear you. you. In fact, a good buddy of mine, good buddy of mine, Pat Flynn, he coined the phrase, uh, will it fly? Right. So whenever you come up with something, will it fly? I mean, we all make paper airplanes out of everything, right? So we take the idea, make a paper airplane out of it. It might nosedive and crash. That's fine. At least, you know, and you know, not to go in that direction. I love the paper airplane analogy. It's so perfect. I went to school to become a teacher. I got a teaching certificate in North Carolina State, this whole thing. And you have to do a you have to do a project, kind of like teach or put a syllabus together to teach a class. And I taught how to, you know, fly paper airplanes. And in my research, this is so random and stupid. In my research of trying to find out, like, you know how to teach kids, how to create paper airplanes, whatever theory. I found out, I did not know, that there is an actual like national competition, paper airplane competition, where you know you try to get in a gymnasium and people are making their best piece of paper airplane. And one year, a person won because they the rules were it had to be a piece of paper and had to fly through the air unaccompanied. Yeah. Like those are the basic rules. And so he just balled it up into a ball and threw it farther than everybody else. <laughs> like, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> but I like that. Absolutely. You got to see if it flies. So let's talk about you. I'm so excited to find out how you even got into this business. So you're in Virginia now. Yep. Is that where you're from? Uh, no, it's funny. Uh, I'm a son of a rocket scientist, believe it or not. Speaking of aeronautic. And so born in just south of Houston, Texas. And by the age of six, I'd lived in five different states. Holy. So Louisiana, Mississippi. My dad worked for as a contractor for NASA at the tail end of the Apollo program. 
And then that transition for brief stint for Cessna aircraft in Wichita, Kansas, and then back to Kennedy Space Center, Titusville, Florida, actually, for the advent of the space shuttle program. And so I grew up, you know, watching rocket launches and missile launches and everything else from Cape Canaveral or Kennedy Space Center and having a blast doing it. Wow. Do you remember any of that, like between zero and six? Do you have any memories from zero to six or just basically when, where did you finally settle? Was it Florida? Yeah, it is Florida. So at age six, I'd moved to Florida with my folks, obviously. And so he just got a job at Kennedy Space Center. He's working there, working on the space shuttle main engines, main propulsion systems and PS and uh, was de facto engineer, if you will, for the space shuttle engines. Wow. Did he work on the Challenger? He did work on the Challenger. He didn't work on the uh, solid rocket boosters as uh, Morton Thiokol, if I remember correctly. But I remember being at school that day when Challenger launched and we ran outside to watch. And that was because yeah, you were right there. We watched it on television. Yeah, yeah saw it right there. And uh, unfortunately and tragically, I saw the explosion. Some people didn't understand what was going on. One of my classmates was convinced that his dad had died. I mean, all of her parents had worked over at the Cape because, you know, you see the debris coming down. He is convinced oh, his, his right. parents were dead or dad was dead. And uh, had a teacher next to me. She said, ooh, how beautiful, because she had no clue what was going on. But I remember they ushered us into the cafeteria. They said on TVs, and I remember clearly a CBS, Dan Rather's on there doing his live report and everything. And they won't let us go home. They're so afraid that there'd be like a toxic cloud or coming over our area or whatever. And they kept us there until someone picked us up later that day. How old were you during that? So that would have been sixth grade, 1986, January, 1986. So yeah, sixth grade, probably what, 11, 12? Yeah. That's so wild. I think I, I mean, 1986, I guess I was 15. So I got a couple of years on you, but it was still, you know, we were watching in freshman year in high school. And we didn't, you know, I mean, if you would have just saw it, you wouldn't have known exactly what it was, but we were watching on television. So we also had the commentary, right? Like it wasn't like you're outside. You had no idea. Like I would have been like the teacher. Oh, that's pretty cool. Like they're doing yeah. a firework display. You know, <laughs> I wouldn't have known, you know, yeah. but they had the commentary too. And it was like, mm, wow, that's not, it's not fun at all. But I had no relationship to it, you know, so far removed from it, but Wow. So that's what your dad did. So your dad worked on rock. Does he still work on rockets? No, no. He's 80 years old. So he was born right before Pearl Harbor started. So he'll be 80 this year. And oh, wow. um, so he retired. I guess he retired mid 90s. He retired once and then came back and then retired again. So <laughs> that's pretty awesome. What'd your mom do? She is a homemaker of sorts. And then later, uh, after my dad was kind of winding down his career, she started working for American Express and traveled around the country with American Express on the corporate side through their corporate card they had. And, uh, oh, and that's fun. Um, so, yeah, grew up in uh, Florida, just typical household, had no siblings. So if someone broke something, well, it was my fault every time <laughs> I started to blame the dog. But, yeah, that began my entrepreneurial journey is really at the Advent Space Shuttle Program, because I saw so many people go out business. I saw businesses go out business. People get laid off. Some of my friends' classmates had to move away from the area, all because, you know, NASA was shutting down at the time while they did their investigations and so forth. And I knew that I knew that I knew that nine to five job just wasn't going to cut it. My parents had always taught me, hey, work hard for 40 years. 
and you'll earn a pension and retire successfully. And that is the mantra then. That certainly isn't the mantra today. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I kind of remember hearing that same sentiment up until the late 70s, like the early 80s, the idea that you could work for, or you, you know what it was? It was like you could trust your employer to take care of you for life. Really kind of like a lot of people were kind of shaking their heads going, wait, where's my gold watch? This pink slip is not the same thing. You know, I couldn't even imagine what it must have been like working, you know, like you say, like your dad and mom, you know, moved five times by the time you're six years old. That means that there were five job changes, whether it was, you know, by design or by accident, who knows, right? But that's got to be a twisty, turvy kind of lifestyle where you're kind of having to pick up all the time. Yeah. And thankfully it happened at such a young age. It didn't leave too much of an impression or at least negative impression. I know I had law friends who were military brats and they're always moving around every few years or so. Mm-hmm. And I saw all the challenges they face. And I definitely didn't want to be another statistic with all that. I know it's not easy and hats off to anyone who is led to move around like that. Those, but I just couldn't see it for myself, for sure. I like spilling. Yeah, I do too. You said that you started kind of understanding entrepreneurial, you know, adventures quite early. What was your first, what were you doing first? What was your first job? Like, did you start selling newspapers? What was it? What'd you do? Yeah, I did the typical, you know, age boy thing back in way back when that's mowing lawns, right? So getting up, you know, pushing the lawnmower around from place to place, getting five bucks here, 10 bucks there. I was pretty happy to get it. And Back in high school, I noticed, at least through the teachers I had, that there's a pattern with some of the tests. You know, they'd ask the same questions, or you could predict and guess what the questions on those tests might be. And so I started a study guide business. And, you know, with seven classes, I was 15, started that one, 15 or so. You started a study class business at this age of 15? Yeah, study guide. And so these study guides, I would turn around, I'd sell for $10 a piece. I'd print it up on my dot matrix printer, take an hour to print up these guides. Some of them were sanctioned by the teachers because wow, I would guess down to the uh, question exactly what's going to be on that test. And I had the answers with it. I didn't encourage them to use it as a cheat guide, but they use it as a study guide and actually worked out pretty well for them and uh, made some pretty good money. I'd pull in you know, hundred, two hundred dollars a semester per class, and so I raked up some pretty good money way back when. That is crazy. I can't even imagine. I was certainly not smart enough at fifteen to figure out how to take my own test. Forget help you take yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's like I guess that's the type type of kid a rocket scientist raises, right? I mean, that's. I mean, I yeah, guess yeah. you'd expect no less. Well, you know, it wasn't always peaches and roses. I remember my freshman year, I almost flunked out. You know, I just hung out the wrong crowd, right? To steal from Jim Rohn, you're the average of the five people you hang around with the most. And I was just hanging around the wrong crowd. And I learned pretty early on that if I hung out the starter people, then maybe some of the smarts would rub off of me and uh, carry that through high school. I lived with the wrong crowd. Uh, (laughs) Remember... (laughs) I remember this is so this is so stupid, but uh, I remember in like seventh or eighth grade, we were having a little. Somebody came in and talked to us about bullying and what it meant to be bullied, and I remember 
I remember, you know, like they're saying, like, does anybody do this to you? And does anybody do that to you? And I'm like, yes, yes. You know, that push you around. Yes. Make you do things you don't want to. Yes. You know, give you noogies and that kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes. Like, who's doing this to you? I'm like, my brother, my sister. Like, well, that doesn't count. <laughs> getting bullied at home. <laughs> double standard. Double standard. Total double standard. Nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to hear it. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I finally wised up, got into, uh, got my first job and that was working at a restaurant, uh, started off at the lowest level at Washington dishes and, uh, worked my way up all the way to chef. Uh, wow. Right what kind of restaurant was it? It's just a higher end deli. So sandwiches, uh, homemade soup, salads, but we'd make stuff from scratch. Uh, oh. So lasagna, quiches, stuff like that. And did really well there. It's a nice sit-down restaurant and uh, family style and worked out really well. Wow, that's really fantastic. And so you kind of got in the front door. What were you, like 16 when you first got that job? Yep. And then you got done before you went to college or? Yeah, I wrapped up. So at the end of my senior year, I turned in my resignation and then went off to university. And that's Stetson University to start off and started there. Where? What university did you go to? Stetson University. In the Where's land, Stetson? Florida. The land, Florida. Ever hear of Stetson Hats? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the founder of the Hats founded the university, actually founded as a women's college, I believe. This is over 100 years ago, probably 120 years ago now. And then eventually evolved and became a education school and then business and everything else. And not, I'm not sure what they're doing today, but I was there to study political science and economics. Really? Political science and economics. So macroeconomics. I love macro. So do I. I was just talking to somebody. They're like, no, I really like micro. I'm like, who the heck likes no, microeconomics? Yeah, no. no. The whole bimetallism, the country on country, the... Yeah, it makes me... You know what it does to me, though, now, all these years later, is it makes me very skeptical of, like, you know, Bitcoin and Dogecoin and... <laughs> You know, because I'm like, well, who's backing that? And, you know, I mean, Nothing. who's going to regulate and who's going to say the value is whatever? And then, you know, Elon yep. Musk just did that thing where he's taking out all this money. Everyone's all mad. Like, no, that's what France did to England. And that's what England, you know what I mean? Like, that's bimetallism. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. I'm kind of curious where this goes. Uh, I don't know. If, I mean, this is running live. But if you run to your portfolio today in the stock market, you'll see you took a beating today. Sorry, guys. And if you were to look at... Uh, <laughs> Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever, you know, any sort of cryptocurrency you're seeing, you're taking it there as well. So uh, sorry, guys. Yeah, it's a weird thing. The study of economics, governmental economics, you know, country to country, macroeconomics. Yeah. I agree. Super interesting. So why didn't you, you didn't get a job in politics or in econ? Or yeah, I didn't do anything in economics per se. But in politics, I started working on campaigns. I worked on a couple of high-profile campaigns. Doing uh, what? Help pay anywhere from volunteering all the way up to managing campaigns wow. and everything in between. I uh, had last doing it, worked in worked with some very recognizable, notable people, especially out of Florida and on the national scene. Had a really good time doing it. Learned a lot, learned a lot of people. And, and then uh, after a year and a half at Stetson University, I get a letter Christmas Eve, 1993. They said, sorry, don't come back. Your grades aren't good enough. No. Yeah. Because that's more majoring and focusing on parties 
and events and the fraternity and you know how the thing you know the freshman 15 mine was more 30 ish and uh, <laughs> you don't you should have aced that class i got an yeah, a in the freshman 15 <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i was asked not to come back by then my parents had moved from florida to outside washington dc here to a town called vienna virginia moved in with them just for a semester went to school and they experienced their first winter up here. It snowed over a foot just in a single city. And they said, forget it. You can stay here if you want. We're going back to Florida. And it's like, well, bye. See you later. And I transferred to Old Dominion University out of Norfolk, Virginia. Wow. And you got your act together, obviously. Yeah, I did really well. Excelled in school. Did very, very well in school. Yeah, good for you. And so what was your job coming out of college then? What did you do? Yeah, so here's the funny thing. I did odds and end jobs here and there. I worked for like Manpower, you know, the temp agency. I worked sure, for I've done some station. Manpower stints. Yeah, I love it. It's a great way to get a feel of different careers forth and have blast doing it. Through there, I worked for a major telecom. I worked for a major newspaper out there, a TV station. Learned so much during the 96 Olympics. I worked in the marketing department for television, you know, signing the slots for all the commercials and when they come on during the Olympics and so forth. Wow. Had so much fun doing that. But I knew that I wanted to start my own business. And I actually started a business. I started a distribution company while I was down there. And I did just to earn extra beer money, extra fun money. It's by then it's dating my wife. Yeah, what's a and, distribution company? Were you like a little mini break in bulk? Like you'd buy in bulk and you'd break it up and ship it out? Right. I was just connecting. I was just connecting the retailer versus the wholesaler and retailers is the consumer. And all I'd want is a cut of it, percentage of it. And so that's a business that cared for quite a while, but it funded my fun. It paid for dating and gave me a little bit of flexibility to a point where once I came out of college, I didn't really need to find a job per se. I needed extra money. I wasn't you know, free by any means. I needed a little extra income. And that's the start of the cleaning, where my future father-in-law, I was already dating his daughter at the time, came to me and I, I was about to go off to law school or I was considering law school, I should say. And he knew that I had some interest in law and contracts. And he said, hey, I have these contracts here. Can you review these contracts? Well, he'd already owned a cleaning company and boy, he owned it. He started in 1978. Get this, Ralph. He started in 1978. He is a security night watch guy. He'd walk around, do security at a building. It's a 13, 14 story building. And he'd walk around. And one day, one of the owners of the building came to him and said, hey, do you know how to clean? He never cleaned before in his life. He goes, yeah, I know how to clean. And so he started cleaning this building, which is him and his wife, all alone, day in, day out, weeks on end, weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And he had no idea how to invoice. He didn't have a contract, never did a proposal. He didn't know, he didn't have any business sense whatsoever. And he worked there for free for months. And he is expecting to get paid, but he didn't know to ha how to ask for the money. He didn't know the invoice. What? Yes. And one day that owner who offered him the gig said, have we ever paid you? I haven't seen an invoice from you. And he goes, I don't know how to do that. Well, that owner felt so guilty. He pulled him in, oh, hired one of, 
yeah, hired his attorney to come in, draw up some contracts. Of course, there's a one-sided contract, if you know what I mean, coming from the client, but gave yeah, but him free still. legal. Yeah, it's better than nothing. So he got his cleaning business up and running with a one-sided, lopsided contract. And that contract that was created in 1978 or so is the same contract he was still using when I came along in 1997. Wow, like a 20-year contract. 20-year contract. So what he would do, he would white out the contract. He'd take a photocopy of it, write in the new look new details and hand it to someone. And that was his proposal. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing screams by from me like a photocopied contract that's been photocopied over and over again. It's white out. Oh my, I love it. And I hate it at the same time. Like I'm with you. I'm like, my alarm bells are going off like mad. And at the same time, the idea of getting a contract and having that life expectancy of 20 years, Yes, yes, yes. That's a so great he, life right there. So he had that contract and the term wasn't 20, but is the same copy used. Yeah, no, I understand. Just being able to keep that contract for 20, that's a feat in itself. That's a feat. All, it's all those photocopies, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I guarantee you there's somebody going, you know, you need to reduce that price. I'll make her work for free two days a week, right? He's <laughs> reducing his wife's wage. <laughs> so Be he had that. He had that going and it's a horrible contract. He said, hey, we please review it? And I got to tell you the back up a little bit. He grew his business that way to about 2.4 million in revenue, in annual revenue. Wow. Just by photocopying that same contract over and over again, changing the terms, changing the date, changing the client name, address and all that, and just reusing the same copy. And that was his proposal. And he grew his business to 2.4 million. Again, this is before the internet. This is before Google was a funny word. This is before any of that. And he did it just with a handshake and a crappy contract. You know, I, um, I've i signed some pretty great contracts and I'm talking they're immaculately written, read by 600, you know, lawyer team, and then still had people not honor them. So, you know, I'd take a handshake yep. with an honest person any day. So, yeah, he is definitely pro handshake, but he took the business yeah, to that. It had receded from his high of about 2.4 million down to 600,000 when he came to me with that crappy contract to review. He knew he had a problem. He knew he needed to grow. He didn't know how to grow. You know, the times were changing for him and he had to make a major change. And so he said, hey, will you review this contract? I totally redid his contracts for him. And then I said, well, what about your proposal? What are you using this proposal? And that's when he told me, hey, this contract is the proposal. It's like, no, nah, let's get you something better. Let's get you up and running. Let's get a nice proposal for you. So that way your future clients can see you and take you a little more seriously versus having this photocopy piece of paper here. I got to tell you, historically, 1996, seven, eight, those were some great years, economically speaking, here in the US. I mean, we were, the, you know, we were just flying. It was really doing pretty well. And there was so much competition, you know, a good economy. All it does is breed a really good, healthy, you know, competition, healthy. I hate competition personally, but you know, whatever. So I think I should get all the business. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> I hear somebody like, Oh, I'm going to be a sales consultant too. I'm like, you gunky. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you and a hundred other people. You and a hundred others. Thanks. Uh, you know, 
There's not enough room in this field. Stay out. Anyway, <laughs> healthy competition for others. Not for me. I'm not a big fan. But so I could imagine that he kind of was like showing up. I've been to these, you know, I mean, I'm sure you have too, where you go for an open bid and there's 30 contractors and you're like, holy crap. <laughs> I don't think I have a pencil sharp enough for this. Oh my. You know what I mean? Because you just have to, yeah. it's so cutthroat. And I bet that's what was happening to him during that time. And so my next logical question is going to be, how did you work with him at all about how he was even coming up with pricing and bidding and job routines? And yeah. So after I did that and completed everything for him, he said, Hey, I need someone to sell for me. And that's where it falls back. You know, I already had my little side gig going, things were going all right, but I needed a little more flexibility. I, I didn't want a nine to five job where I'd be stuck into it and limited by vacation time or whatever. I needed the freedom to travel around and do things. So I was looking to start a family one day too. So I needed that flexibility in that space. And I said, Hey, if you give me unlimited days off, I'll give you a hundred percent. As long as we go and accomplish whatever goal you might have, as long as it's smart, you know, time sensitive, measurable, you know, all those attributes. And he said, okay. And I said, well, wh what's your goal? And he said, I'd like to triple in size in the next two years. So I want to go from 600,000 to 1.8 million in two years. And I said, done. And so I rolled up my sleeves and I got to work. And, and in two years time, let's, yeah. let's talk about what was the first thing you did? First thing we did, uh, obviously I didn't have a computer to work on. I didn't have an email address. We didn't have a website. We have fax machine and a phone, which is phones all you need, right? I had a hand to shake someone's hand. <laughs> and I knew how- We're getting granular here. I had a hand. <laughs> yeah. If not, I mean, elbow all right. works just all as right. well. Uh, so dove in and just started networking with anyone and everyone who would listen. Did you start making cold calls right away? Start putting flyers out? Just- what kind yeah. of business was he doing? Was it all commercial class A buildings? Was it yeah. medical? 100% commercial. He niched between commercial office buildings. Some were borderline class A. And then all of them were, you know, 10 or more employees needed and up. Oh, so these are big buildings. So these are big buildings. Got it. And then schools, some of the schools, first school he got, one of the board directors for that office building happened to, or th as the owner of that company who managed the office building, he had a school that he ran and it's one of the largest private schools here in the DC area. And he said, Hey, will you come clean our school as well? And so it kind of rolled in and snowballed and grew some momentum for him. So when I came along, I just built along that momentum. It's like, okay, well, what other schools are here in the area? What other buildings are here in the area? I didn't know anything about cleaning. I can't tell you anything about pricing. I knew how to shake a hand, say hi to someone or pick up the phone, dial for dollars, right? It's a numbers game. And so I just slowly built up that momentum, building on what he had already accomplished. And so our, our probably biggest was networking. So chamber of commerce events, networking groups, those type of organizations, and also association groups. So there's some building association, property managers association, so forth here locally. So I made a point. It's like, well, where are those building owners at? I'll join those groups and be affiliate at that. I didn't know anything about sales. I never did sales in my life. 
whatsoever. So I asked him to pay for some sales courses. So like Dale oh. Carnegie training or wow. the sales advantage course, I placed runner up in the sales talk championship for them, joined other groups. Whenever I had a chance to speak in front of people, I said, sign me up. Now I'm shy and introverted. So anyone listening or watching this, you got to know I'm happy in the corner watching the world go by. I, that's my happy place. But if I wanted to eat, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. What was the sales competition? Was it like an elevator pitch competition? No, it's a little more than that. So you went through a whole training. seemed like it was three, maybe three-ish months or so, maybe, maybe 12, 16 weeks where you're in there. And then at the end, you had to pitch. Yeah, you had to pitch your company more than elevator pitch, but you had to do a full pitch and full presentation. And I lost out to a radio DJ who sold homes on the side. So he had the communication skills, he had the experience, and he edged me out on that. That's Probably okay. a, a pretty animated storyteller. Oh, uh, he was good too. He was, <laughs> he would, uh, I still remember his speech. He would say, hey, our homes are the best homes. You know, the floorboards or whatever they call it, you know, for the joints for the house are closer together versus our competitors are a little further out. And then he'd do this jump test where he jump up and down and said, listen for that echo. Do you see that echo? You don't hear it because in other homes, you will. I challenge you to go to our competitors' homes, jump up and down in their home and listen for that echo. And if you hear echo, you come back to us and buy from us or you know something along those lines. He was gold. He was magical. Makes me want to go jump on the floors. Like, is there an echo? <laughs> wow, that's super fun. So you, I love that you took the opportunity and then immediately said, I want some education. And I mean, Dale Carnegie, is there a better... A better oh, sales oh. trainer. Oh, Yvette. it was awesome. It was awesome. No I learned question. so much in that. You know, the elevator pitch naturally, unique selling propositions, handling objections, learned it all and used quite a bit of it. But I got to tell you, once I got thrusted in to a new bid, new bid opportunity where I'm doing the walkthrough, right? You know, you're walking in there and you think of all the training that you just went through Dell Carnegie or through some of these other organizations you learned through. And I realized overall that I did more for the sale just by shutting up and listening and asking the questions right at the right time. And that's what I did. I learned, so just to piggyback off what you're saying, I learned an awful lot throughout my entire career. And, and I've been selling commercial cleaning services forever. I work in healthcare. So I work in nursing homes, hospitals, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it the best as much as I hated it, as much as it pained me to be in a group of people who are bidding on the same building, boy, you just listen to their questions. You're like, oh, I didn't think of that. Let's write that down. Oh, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just a true learn. You learn a lot just by keeping your mouth shut. It's amazing. Yep. Yeah. And uh, back to your original point about, you know, being 30 contractors, you know, being hustled through a building. My business partner calls it uh, being cattle you know, herd it around like cattle, you know, it's funny. We'll walk into, you know, a government bid or whatever, and you will have 30 in there and you're walking around. You can't keep up as a group because, you know, there's so many of us, right. You know, and he'll, he'll under his breath, he'll go, Boo, you know, as we're walking around, <laughs> he, he hates bidding on those. I, frankly, I do too, but it's, I think everyone should do it. It's a great way to learn, great way to get some practice. It's a great, you're, and here's the thing, and you're so right. And I'm so, I, I can't believe I haven't, even talked about this before, but think about this. You're a brand new commercial cleaner 
or you want to get into commercial cleaning and or you're you know you're cleaning houses now but you want to go to that next level whatever if you're where you just want to have some experience with it here's the thing find out where they're bidding go and here's the best part you don't have to bid yeah you don't have to you can literally you say hey i'm looking at this to bid on with never actually intending to put a bid in yeah but if you do, if you're walking around, you're like, you know what? I think I can do this. Go ahead and put a bid in. Either way, it's a fantastic learning experience. Such a great yeah. learning experience. In fact, I was coaching someone through a, a housing authority near her location. And we saw on the website that 68 different companies were bidding for the same thing, if memory serves. Out of that, only about 10 handed in their proposal, or at least on time. That's it. That's yep. it. And a lot of times when I learned that I was, I tell, I'm going to be honest with you. When I learned that if three or four people showed up for a bid, only one or two was actually going to place their bid. I stopped cutting my prices because the odds are I may be the only bid and it's foolish of me to bid with against myself. Yeah. Right. And so I would just be like, you know what? This is the amount that it would this is what it's going to cost me to do it. This is how much profit I want to make on it. That's my bid and the story. And then, you know, you don't get it. They came under, you know, they were the lower bid. Okay. The next one, I was the only bid. Yeah. Perfect. Right. I mean. That's the way it works. Oh, it's so great. I remember this one time though, I was doing a tour and we're, you know, everybody's there. We're all asking questions. Maybe only like six contractors there. So not a big group, but big enough. And one of the guy who was running the tour didn't have all the answers. And so one of the guys in the tour started answering. And so I'm like, oh, that's odd. Okay. You know, like how often is this clean? And the guy's like, I'm not really, would you know, Mike? Mike's like, yeah, this is, you know, clean once or, you know, whatever. And we're walking. I'm like, how do you know so much? He goes, it's currently my bid. And I, that was the first time I ever knew that you had to bid on it. I'm like, you're bidding on it too. He's like, it's up for bid. We all have to bid. And I was like, oh man. Yeah. Now that I, hurts. Now that hurts. <laughs> yeah. I learned that similar situation probably about 10 years ago. I bid on a public library out in Loudoun County, Virginia, and I go to bid on it and they're walking through and similar situation. They're asking one of the contractors, it's like, why are they asking this guy? And he said, yeah, I, I'm stuck for, you know, three years with the two-year option beyond that or whatever. And we're, we're at our end and we got to rebid if we want to continue in. I just can't imagine trying to help your competition like that but i was gonna yeah. say i've never been in that situation but with peace and love i would lie <laughs> i would make it up they were like how often do you clean this like eight times a day they want this clean <laughs> no seriously yeah they're really really terrible around here real tough to deal with yeah bathroom, <laughs> it's always destroyed eight times a day i'm telling you eight times a day <laughs> <laughs> i would totally make it up i would just i would not be helpful that's i'd be the opposite of help for sure yeah, just make sure your average hourly rate sixty and up, and you should be all right. You know, as a matter good. of fact, as a matter of fact, round that on up to seventy. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on a nursing home. You know, I've been in the cleaning business for twenty years, and so we generally our wages are always the most terrible, right? They're always the lowest. If they could pay us less, they would, right? That's the essential, yeah. the modus operandi of us in the cleaning industry. But I went to a building where they said the average, the starting wage was $18.25. And I was like, shut up. There's no chance it's 18. And sure enough, it was. I was like, what? 
1825 to start. I was like, what? Forget this bit. Are you hiring? Because I could. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. It's going to do floor care. Floor care here, you know. Mm-hmm. We're hiring housekeepers. I don't do housekeeping, but floor care. I'd be your guy. Love floor care. I'm such a big fan. So that's how you got your start, huh? That's super great. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I had no clue what I was doing. I didn't know how to bid. I tagged along with my then future father-in-law on how to bid. And I realized real quick that he was, his strategy to bid was to bid and get it at all costs, no matter what it costs. And so he would underbid himself all the time to a point where he's losing money. And that's how he built up his 2.4 million was with contracts he was losing money on, quite frankly. And so he, by the time I came along, I mean, I started in 97, but I know by 2005 or so, he owed the IRS back tax debt of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And what he would do, he would borrow from Uncle Sam, not pay the taxes on time, and then turn around and bid, price it to win it. And his logic was, well, if we win it, then we'll just increase next time. Well, and I said, well, how much do you want to increase? He said, well, you know, 5% or so. Well, 5% all loss is still loss. You're still losing money. You know, it's not going to help you any. You're losing money. You're barely outpacing inflation. Yeah. And nowadays, you're crazy if you think you're getting a 5% increase year over year. I mean, at this point, we're even writing them in contracts that we have to get an increase. And then it, it yeah. becomes one of the biggest sticking points to even get somebody to sign a contract. Yeah. Is because that automatic increase is put in there. But to your point, if you don't have it in there, there's no, if you don't have it already preset that you're going to get an increase, you're never getting an increase. Right. Never. Because you'll never get around to asking or you're going to fit it, forget about the renewal date. You'll change automatically to a month to month at the same rate over and over and over again. And you're just not progressing the football down the field. In fact, you're going backwards for every year. You're not increasing. Because we all know, certainly uh, nationwide, there's talk of increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, I'm not suggesting people pay minimum wage, but you should always pay a wage that's above your competitors, or at least on average, right? So that way you attract and keep great talent. And But you're not counting for the supply costs, right? What did we experience over the past year? How much did our supply budget increase? Well, a ton, right? Anywhere from toilet Everything paper to increased. hand soap. Sanitizer, equip vacuums. How much is a backpack vacuum now? I got to tell you, again, I work in healthcare. I work in nursing homes and hospitals and senior care facilities. And we were having to give hero pay. Now, I didn't want to give hero pay. The last thing I wanted to do was give hero pay. Yeah. Honestly. But as soon as someone in the nursing home or the hospital gave somebody hero pay, that was it. You basically were hamstrung. You had to. If yeah. they gave them a uh, $50 gift card, everybody was getting a $50. I was like, all right, come on. Because everyone talks and then people start complaining and it just becomes a headache for you and it just compounds day after he- day. Hero pay was an expense I had never heard of. And quite frankly, I never want to hear again because <laughs> you can't afford it. We could not afford it. You know, I mean, and staffing didn't change. We were still super short-staffed, and the staff we had still weren't coming in on time or being where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there and sneaking out early. And, you know, <laughs> and we're giving them hero pay. What are you doing? What? <laughs> <laughs> Housekeeper's podcast. Yeah. This is my mind over here. Hero pay. <laughs> Five, four, three. I'm counting down. We're going to. No. 
<laughs> thank you. Thank you. Calm it down. Calm it down. Yeah. No, I agree. And, you know, I always say when it comes to supply costs, it's usually only, you know, a, we live in our industries, 85% labor. So supply costs, usually, even if it does go up, we're only talking about 15, 18% of the overall contract is with supplies. But to your point, especially when, boy, was it 2008 when we had all those oil crises? Yeah. The price of garbage bags went Enough. through the roof. They went up so high that I have friends who still work in their cleanings, they professional cleaners or commercial cleaners, they clean hotels. They still don't use garbage bags. They eliminated them completely. None of the rooms have garbage bags anymore. They went completely non-garbage bags. So it's just wow. a can. It has a little piece of paper, a little absorbent piece of paper in the bottom. Uh, we'd rather clean the can than uh, buy and throw away all those garbage bags. It's just it's way too expensive. So they still don't use them. Wow. Wow. Mm. Yeah, especially in other things uh, like uh, stripper and wax, you know, petroleum-based, you know. Very expensive. Hmm. So when did you eventually go out on your own? Did you? So you worked for him for a while, and then how did you get on your own? He had a calling to join the ministry as a deacon within the Catholic Church. Oh, nice. And so he basically began a quest to focus on that as uh, basically a master's degree. I would describe it as a master's degree in theology. The amount of stuff he was reading, in fact, English is not a primary language for him. The amount of work he was doing and all these philosophers and everything, he'd have me review his papers. It's like, this is beyond me. I mean, this wow. is incredible. Wow. And it's amazing way he's going through. And then he got into the program. Well, here was the challenge with that. Some of the churches that he could potentially serve in, make decisions for, were some of our clients. So it became a conflict of interest where he would be deciding on cleaning services for church he serves and works for. And so he made a decision. In fact, this was such a rough period. We had just bought our very first home. We'd been written for years and years and years, saving up, saving up, saving up. You had the bubble burst in the uh, real estate market, right? 2010 or so. And it's like, yes, this is the time to buy. This is the perfect time to buy. And we had saved up and did it right. Interest rates were all time low at that point. And I bought the home. And then a month later, he comes to me and says, I'm selling the company. And I knew that if he sold the company, he'd sell it to someone else and I'd likely be jobless. And that scared the snot out of me. You know, by then, baby number four had already come. I got four kids. Kiddo number four came along. Infant, it's like, what am I going to do with four kids? My wife doesn't work and I won't be working. Where are we going to do? And so I went in with the most senior employee. He had started in 1982 with the company, still with the company. And I said, hey, do you want to buy them out? And so we went in together 50-50 as a partnership and bought out Universal Janitorial Services. And that's back uh, start of 2011. Wow. Good for you. Yeah. Wow. How's Sink that partnership spin. working out? <laughs> Did I? What happened? <laughs> uh, you know, you, you got me at 50-50. When you said 50-50, I cringed a little bit. I was yeah, like, ah. I, know. I know. I still cringe. It's probably one of the bigger mistakes I've ever made. I think partnerships can be great because you're pulling in different strengths. In his case, he does all the operations. 
I don't know how to clean a toilet, but he knows how to train people to clean toilets, right? I don't know how to strip and wax a floor effectively. You don't want me, you'd fire me if I worked for you. But you know what? He knows how to strip and wax floors and he does a beautiful job at it. It's like, I could use that talent. I'll do everything else. I'll do HR, payroll, marketing, sales, all that. And then we'll grow together. And that's probably one of my biggest follies because when you're at 50-50, you have now two heads and two heads cannot run together. If you know what I mean, one has to lead. Yeah. And that was the biggest headache and biggest challenge. We came up with the systems like, well, let's get the former owner to be a tiebreaker if we have anything major, but otherwise I'll be making the decision. And thankfully it hasn't come too far beyond that. There's a couple of times we butt heads and we'll do the tie or the vote thing. But other than that, things have gone fairly well. If I had it to do over again, anyone listening to this or watching this, please don't do partnerships. Or if you do, make sure you have, you know, 60, 40 split or whatever. So at least 51, 49. And you know what? It can, from what I understand, and I got to tell you, the closest I ever came to a partnership died quickly when I realized he was offering me 3%. And I was like, are you crazy? (laughs) Are you crazy? Anyway, so it did not go anywhere. He's like, well, I just want you to build the company for me and I'll back it financially. I was like, yeah, okay. And do it for Keep your money, 3%. <laughs> like I, to this day, I'm just like shaking my head. Like who would buy that? He's like, yeah. I'm going to find someone. Okay, good luck. <laughs> but from what I understand, you can make an agreement where even though you may be 50-50, both financially held, which means pros and cons, but then you could also give one person deciding. So even though you're 50, 50, as far as financially goes and ownership goes, you can assign, you know, the operations. Yep. You get the siding factor, you know, so you could have done that. And that's one of my follies is, you know, I'm the old handshake guy. And even though I would consider him a friend, that's one of my biggest follies as well is not getting something in writing, a buy sell agreement. If one of us isn't living into the, others bargain it, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. then, you know, we buy each other out or at mm-hmm. least give the option to it. And I failed to do that. Fast forward, it kind of reared its ugly head during COVID. He's from El Salvador. Originally, he left for El Salvador a week before everything locked down. And he was stuck in that country for over four months. Well, it's hard to op- do any operating when you're not even in the country. So I had to learn on the fly. And you know, thankfully he was out of the way where I can make those tough decisions and we got a lot done and uh, we soldiered through all that. Hmm. It It's, you know, again, just kind of goes right to the, your tenacity of rolling up your sleeves. And I mean, there are a lot of people who just simply walk away from stuff like that because it gets too hard, gets too heavy, gets too confusing, gets too stressful. And you're certainly the type of person who does not just like, all right. Well. Remember as a kid playing with Weebles? Of course, uh, we they never fall down. <laughs> yeah, Weebles wobble, but they never fall down. So, <laughs> I loved Weebles wobbles. We had a, a punching bag that was a Weeble wobble. So it was a punching bag oh, that those were fall fun. down. Yeah. <laughs> I was always jealous of my friend down the street. He had a nice one. It's like, oh, you know, do little boxing rounds and, you know, can I have one for Christmas? No, instead I get, you know, a little Evil Knievel wind up thing. But I don't know how you can hate on Evil Knievel wind up thing. What's the matter with you? <laughs> I'd have done anything for an Evil Knievel. Housekeepers podcast. <laughs> yeah, we're we talking about everything here, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, how did you start your second business, which is your help helping? Well, uh, that's 2020. That's how you started yep. 
So talk yeah. about that big pivot for you. Oh, it's a huge pivot. So we knew COVID was coming. I'm a follower of news. I mean, again, political junkie. So I, I was always steadfast in the news. I was looking at trends, trying to figure out what's coming out in different parts of the world. And back in early January, I started hearing about this virus out of China. And by late January, you're seeing videos of people falling down in the middle of the street. But it felt like news just wasn't hitting here. I remember reaching out to our clients at the time say, hey, we got this China virus. We're not sure what's going on. It may impact us. All it takes is one person coming over here and we're in trouble. And sure enough, that eventually is what happened. And, you know, I remember seeing reports, maybe three people are here, tested positive, then it turned to seven, probably within a week or two. I mean, it's dozens and dozens and it just spread like wildfire. But I was telling our clients back in January, especially February, you need to start stocking up. If you need supplies from us, we're ordering consumables for them, toilet paper, paper towels, hand soap, and all that. It's like, if you need it, let's get it now. Let's start bulking up, stocking up. So that way, if this closes your school for a month or two, it's what we thought, right? We all thought that. Then at least we got toilet paper when the kids come back online instead of, you know, what turned out to be impossible to get. I remember at the peak having a trucker. He says, hey, I'm an 18-wheeler. I'm coming out from California. I'd like to buy toilet paper off of you, and I'll buy everything that you get your hands on from your suppliers. And he is willing to pay any price. Now, I turned him down, so I'm protecting local. I'm protecting me. I'm even protecting our competitors because I want to see them thrive and us thrive versus them. But it's a not-so time during all that. But we had to pivot. And once we niched in churches and schools at that time, and the first thing to close were churches and schools, right? So we took a major, major hit. Well, we learned to pivot right away. We'd already done disinfecting for years. Did they, I apologize, I'm going to ask you a qualifying question here. Did they reach right out to you, your schools and your churches and your, the people who you were had contracts with and just reach out and say, hey, listen, we're closing, so we're not going to honor contracts for a while. We're going to see how it plays out or were they still paying the bill? Yeah, so here's what we did. We'd already done disinfecting for years. So we already had the experience. We didn't know what the virus were, where it was at. You can't see it, right? Mm -hmm. So we offered each of our clients like, hey, pay through the end of March and I'll give you free disinfecting for your facility. Okay. We'll disinfect, talk to them. So schools closed. We did our disinfecting. Well, there's only so much disinfecting you could do in a closed school. One of our employees came up with a brilliant idea. He goes, Mark, do you realize I used to do construction? I know how to do this and this. Well, that genius brain, right? So I wrote down all the skills our employees had, and I played matchmaker with all of our clients. I said, keep us open, you know, March your clothes. I got them to pay through March. April, the, the disinfecting money covered that. So they paid us for April. And in May, I did played matchmaker. I said, hey, who needs a painter? Who needs someone to do light electrical work? Who needs light plumbing done? Who needs ballast changed in their lights? What, what do you guys need? And I said, just continue paying us. I'll provide cheap labor to you because it's heck of a lot cheaper than hiring a contractor. And we'll get some of these work and tax done that you've been meaning to do all year long that you normally couldn't do. So that covered May. All of our clients paid in May for that. Now we had some smaller ones that fell off the wayside, especially medical, like uh, dentists and stuff like that. They're closing up shop, but it kept the ball rolling. And at the same time, we doubled down on our marketing. 
I have a great digital guy. He's phenomenal. He's actually out Greece. He's originally from Denmark. And he went to uh, University of Texas. So he's a world traveler, if you will. But he did a phenomenal job in our marketing. And I realized through our lead capture, through our website, people were checking us out, trying to figure out how we're staying open through all this. And they're leaving their contact information. And so that led into the coaching side of things. Well, first off, we had disinfecting. We had government call us. So we picked up some government contracts disinfecting. Some government contractors had to stay open through all this. There's one facility we clean. They had a rotating group of people who were COVID positive, but they had to be inside that building. And so we disinfect after them. They go off, do their thing and come back and reinfect the place. And we is a never ending cycle. Love them. Yeah. Love them very much. And it, they work great, phenomenal clients, but we had several clients like that, especially retail who were trying to open back up. And then the schools, private schools, they're trying to open back up for August and September. So we do private schools and those were opening back up and they were calling us, Hey, we disinfect our place right before you get going and then clean, clean it too. Are you still in business? Yeah, of course we are. But through that digital marketing, we had a lot of competitors try to figure us out, non-direct competitors. And that's, that led into coaching. So by August of last year, I started to reach out to some of these people who are not qualified to be clients or consulting clients. I did a little bit of consulting, but they are cleaning companies trying to figure out how to keep things afloat. And that's how you started your, what is it okay. called? It's called um, My Clean Pivot. My Clean Pivot LLC, which is, yeah. so the whole premise then is teaching cleaning companies how to grow, how to clean, how to bid, I imagine, the, yeah. everything, right? A little bit of everything. Whether you're a brand new beginner or seasoned pro with millions <laughs> in revenue, we've helped all sorts of people during all that. So I started offering just free coaching. I'd never done coaching before, had no idea what to do. And so I just used these freebies just to learn and get a feel for it. And then earlier this year, I announced uh, back in January or February that I now offer paid coaching and then it's grown from there. Wow. That's really fantastic. That's a, and you know what? Coaching from somebody like you is perfect because you clearly know what you're talking about because you started in the business without knowing anything. You made right. a ton of mistakes. You had a good mentor, but then, you know, and you just kept figuring it out and figuring it out and figuring it out. And thank God for 2020 because it made you pick up a broom. Yeah. <laughs> right. And actually start getting a little more hands, hands on, on, which I think I got to tell you, there's a a guy that talks about your, you know, like, what is your superpower, right? Like, what is the one thing that the reason that people should hire you, you know, like, why should they hire you? I think yours is so clear. It's because, you know, the business, because you started from zero, worked your way up. And so you're just like the perfect person to actually consult, you know, to ask good questions to. Yeah. How do you do this? How do you bid? How do you, you know, what is it like when you go on a tour? What is it like when you're, you know, putting a proposal together? What does a proposal even look like? A lot of people don't even know what they look like. A lot of people are still making photocopies like your, your <laughs> uh, father-in-law did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, going back in time, when I started in 1997, I was trying to figure out, well, you know, what's my competition looking like? How many competitors do I have? And I stopped at 2,000 competitors. And this was using the phone book back then. We had over 2,000 cleaning companies in the area. Most of these were mom and pop. Some were probably delisted numbers in the phone books or whatever. 
but I realized there's a huge need for cleaning. There's all these competitors and it's not about competing with all of them. There's no way you as a building service contractor can clean every single building out there. I know you said you don't want any competitors. You cannot do it all. I'm sorry, Ralph. It's just impossible. <laughs> I know you want to. To be clear. Yes, I can. How dare you? <laughs> no, that's funny. You know what? The idea behind competition is people think that competition is healthy for other companies. It doesn't do anything for other companies. It drives prices down, not up. It, you know, it makes us all less money. It, what's better if it might be better for the consumer to have competition, but not for the business owner. Yeah. And I challenge anyone thinking that price is a better option because it's not. People don't buy based on price. They buy based on value. The number one selling car, I think, is in 2020 was the Ford F-150. The cheapest car sold in 2020 was the Chevy Spark. How many Chevy Sparks do you see on the road today? I don't even know what that is. So Yeah. It's teeny tiny little hatchback, right? Yeah. And the base price for that was about 14 grand. Well, the number one selling vehicle was the Ford F-150 series at double the price. My friend is my best friend. He is a general manager at a dealership and he still can't keep trucks. Like his inventory from 2020, I was like, you guys are still open? He's like, we're still selling like mad during the yeah. entire COVID experience. I mean, he was. And their biggest problem, even to this day, is inventory. They just don't have any trucks. They have none. And I challenge people's thinking, well, if the cheapest price is the better option, then how come people aren't buying the cheapest vehicle? No, they buy based on value. And we building service contractors, when we walk into a new potential client, we need to add that value to them. They're buying based on value. They're based on the branding that they see. They're based on the website and the content and the the advice that you're offering and the freebies that maybe you're offering through your website, even checklists or what have you. And they just want to know all that. And unfortunately, a lot of our competitors, Ralph, just aren't doing that whatsoever. And, Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, and it, it's also got to keep in mind the cleaning industry is the seventh largest industry for a reason. It's so humongous and it's yeah. everywhere. And you can get I mean, your father-in-law proved it. you can do an awful lot just by having good relationships. Yeah. Just by having good relationships that having, I think developing good relationships is probably the number one marketing tool you should have having, yep. you know, having, having a good core, having empathy for others, you know, being truthful and honest and integrity and, you know, being nice and being present and being seen. My gosh, being seen has got to be one of the biggest challenges. Biggest yep. challenge I have is nobody knows I exist. <laughs> Well, uh, we could certainly change that if you need help with marketing or anything like that. You see that? Now he's trying to sell me. Good job, Mark. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, how do people get a hold of you? How do people find you? How do people work with you? Yeah, probably the best way to find me is through Facebook. You catch me as Mark Lineberry. I can't tell you the link. There's other Mark Lineberries out there. Just find a more handsome <laughs> one. Uh, LinkedIn, same thing. But also through my, mycleanpivot.com, altogether one word. And I'm offering a freebie if anyone's listening to this and they'd like just a little bit of help, a little oomph to get them to the next level. I'm giving away our proposal that we used to offer that brought us in millions of dollars over the years. And that link is mycleanpivot.com backslash podcast. 
and they'll see your mug on there, your face, and then they'll see a link and just fill out the download. We're not going to spam you. Don't worry. I hate spammers and spam. <laughs> and uh, just get a free sample, no conditions asked. That's really fantastic. I will put all of that in the show notes. So the link to your Facebook, the link to your LinkedIn, and my pivot is my cleaning pivot. Uh, my clean pivot. Mycleanpivot.com. I'll add that to the show notes as well. Thank you again so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ralph. It was a lot of fun and I loved learning your story and it's so great. You know, your dad wouldn't expect anything less, you know, son of a rocket scientist. I remember when I was a, I know it was housekeeping podcast, we got out of here. When I was in like grade school, I mean, like second or third grade, there was one of the kids in my class, his name was Eddie. And for extra credit, he was copying the dictionary. I was like, isn't it already in the dictionary? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just writing it word for word. All right. Housekeepers podcast. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's how I envisioned you when I heard your dad was a rocket scientist. You were the kid who was copying the dictionary. No, and, uh, I, was, I was the one cheating in the corner. <laughs> you know, don't mind me. Nothing to see here. That's it. The Housekeepers podcast. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Thank you so much, Mark, for being a guest on our show. And if you like the show, please make sure that you are subscribing to it and that you're writing a review and telling all your friends and making sure you're tuning in every week right here, wherever it is you're watching. You could be watching this on Twitch. You could be watching this on LinkedIn, Facebook. Who knows where you're watching it, wherever you are. Thank you for doing so. YouTube, you could be watching on YouTube right this second. Make sure you subscribe to all of our channels and our podcast and sharing the love, the peace, and the joy. Mark Lineberry, Ralph Peterson the Housekeepers Podcast. We will see you all. That's it. The Housekeepers Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into today's show. Keep in mind the best way to ensure that you never miss an episode of the Housekeepers Podcast is by subscribing to the show and following us on social media. For those of you who are more visually stimulated, you can always watch us record the show live each week on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. In fact, we post all of our videos on YouTube, so make sure you are subscribing to our YouTube channel. If you love the show and you want to help us out, please consider writing a review and sharing the show with all your friends and families and colleagues. And if you are looking for more information about today's guest, all of their contact information and the links to their websites are in the show's notes. That's it. Until next time, this has been the cleanest hour in podcasting. I am Ralph Peterson, and I'll see you later. <laughs>